Welcome to Connections Tech Experience Podcast, bringing you conversations with employees, partners, and customers discussing the latest trends and innovations impacting the modern workforce. Today, AI, artificial intelligence. What is fact? What is fiction? Our host, Penny Conway, Senior Program Manager for Workplace Transformation, sat down recently with Jamal Khan, the president of Connections Global Serve division, which provides customers global access to IT products and services. E-commerce and marketing also fall under Jamal's leadership, and it's his background in software development that has come full circle now as he leads the company's AI efforts. My background by sort of uh, education and tradecraft is um, actually a software developer, and that's how I started my career uh, building trading environments on Wall Street. Interesting. Um, yeah, so um, so that's I'm going to age myself. That's when the internet <laughs> had just come out. So this was like uh, 96, uh, 97 time frame, and um, everyone was sort of scrambling to figure out you know, how to leverage this medium called the web. Mm. Um, and if you imagine those days or, or remember those days in my case, uh, so the models were very basic. It was all about, you know, the number of eyeballs that you can get to a site uh, that would equate to banner ads. And that was the revenue model. And there were some companies, in my case, it was Instanet, one of the largest uh, liquidity pools uh, for equity trading. Um, and and they were looking at leveraging the web as a means of migrating some of their proprietary trading pr- platforms. Mm-hmm. And so th- those are sort of the projects that I started off. And then sort of one of the in- instant challenge that we uh, sort of had to contend with was cybersecurity. How do you secure those right. transactions on an anonymous, uh, sessionless um, um, you know platform? And um, and so that's where I got involved with a company called Verisign, which is a small company in those days. Then, oh yes, yes, yes. Verisign. And and then worked with them for about five years, and then sort of moved down after leaving Verisign uh, on my own path and started sort of investing in building companies. And uh, um, you know, Global Serve was one of the companies uh, that I worked with and for. Uh, was their chief executive for eight years uh, prior to it being acquired by Connection in uh, late 2016. And and now you guys have me. Excellent. <laughs> so and now you are here I on know. our podcast. Yeah. That's your luck. <laughs> <laughs> all roads led to here. Yes, we're really to the podcast. <laughs> this is all converging to the podcast. Right, right. No, we're so excited to have you here. And I, um, artificial intelligence is obviously not a subject that I am proficient in, but I think all of us have some sort of interest or opinion around artificial intelligence and what it is future, you know, future forward, Mm -hmm. um, but also what it is today. And you um, mentioned something interesting, you know, you talked about how you're doing a lot of marketing and the banner ads and when the web first came out. And that's kind of how I look at artificial intelligence is really this phone in my hand being an extension of me and marketers being able to use my data and find out things about me and learn about me and things like that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what the position of artificial intelligence is, you know, for us as people Mm -hmm. Um, and then kind of what it looks like as a, I think, more of a you know, a scientific study or a field mm-hmm. of study. Mm-hmm. Right, sure. So, I mean, that's a really broad question because <laughs> I can now go on a monologue for the next hour. Um, we'll break this up into a series. All right, so you've got to help me break this down. Um, so I, I think from a, a consumer sort of experience, I think in a lot of ways we're experiencing AI um, all the time. And it's become so subtly embedded in some of the day-in, day-out functions that we are involved in. Um, you know, simple things like your Alexa machine, mm-hmm. right? So uh, how it processes language when you're sending it, 
uh, sort of vocal commands, um, your Amazon uh, purchases, um, you know, and then it sort of uh, gives you certain recommendations. So that's those are recommendation engines, and mm-hmm. they're generally built again on on uh, on some level of machine learning, and um, and sort of your Netflix uh, movie choices, and then the recommendation engines that sort of give you certain documentaries that you have to watch or should watch. So those are sort of all these subtle examples um, that, you know, we're having to sort of work with and deal with on a day-in, day-out basis. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. We don't right. even realize that behind a lot of that is is some level of machine learning. Uh, and then obviously autonomous vehicles and, and where they come in. So if you're a proud owner of a Tesla, you know, <laughs> there there's a lot of machine learning and, and, and systems within that as well. So that's sort of your, your day-in, day-out sort of uh, run-of-the-mill um, AI um, sort of systems being leveraged. And again, I, I use the term AI very loosely. I, I, I always make this mistake. And I, I, you know, when I lecture at some universities on this topic, I, I often sort of go through uh, a, l- a large amount of time explaining that AI at the end of the day is not applied technology. And I think a lot of people make that mistake. Yeah, that's a good point. W- right. So when we talk about AI, we well, I'm applying AI. Well, you're not applying AI <laughs> because AI is a field of study. Right. A- AI includes within it a whole bunch of different sub-constructs that you can apply. But on itself, um, AI is nothing but a field of study, something we've been studying for, for millennia in some ways, uh, going as far back as the Greeks, you know, in, in their notion of... Um, autonomous systems and mechanical systems in the 13th century and and so on and so forth so it's it's a it's a it's almost a something that the humankind have been thinking of for a whole um, you know as i said for millennia and uh, and uh, and then of late i think since the 50s it's something that that sort of really taken a life right. uh, on its own and, um, and that's been the progression now the underpinning behind AI at the end of the day is, is just advanced algorithms. And, and since I've worked in AI systems and built a bunch of AI systems, I, I've, I, I don't know at what point was there that seminal moment where, you know, it just converged into this, this uh, you know, that AI is here. Well, AI has always been here. Right. It's, yeah. it's been here in the form of uh, really simple language translators since the 50s. It's been in the form of, um, you know, expert systems uh, in the six, 70s and 80s or, or the micro worlds in the 70s and 80s. So it's been around forever. I, I think there's been a, there's now sort of a convergence of certain things that are happening in the ecosystem that's sort of making AI more sort of uh, um, a relatable uh, sort of a, mm-hmm. a technology or a field of study than it has been in the past. But, you know, just to your question, coming back to your question, uh, Fundamentally, on, on a more sort of scientific, sort of core construct level, it's a lot of computational mathematics that is well translated through um, algorithms. And those algorithms have now essentially become democratized and easier to use. And hence, we have this sort of convergence where AI is being applied across the board uh, or in a lot of different things. Right. And that's, I, I think, one of those first fact versus fiction, because that um, I think now that we see it in our personal lives and it's more more visibility, more access to what's going on in the field. We think it's this revolutionary thing that is coming to our lives. It's going to take over. It could be dangerous, all of those things. But it's truly been an evolution of mathematics and science. Absolutely. And data, you know, all the data that companies have been collecting, people have been collecting for years. Now having actual uh, a system to be able to process that data, output that data, Um, but definitely not new. Um, uh, Even not even 50 years new. No, no, (laughs) not at all. Um, 
but I think there is the, the, the one sort of aspect that I do talk about in terms of why is AI becoming so pervasive um, is that there is truly, there is a slight difference in terms of where we are today as opposed to in the past. And I often call that the convergence of, of the reasons why we're sort of ginning up this hype or that we, we see this hype uh, around AI. You know, one is clearly the explosion of data, to your point. You know, as, as consumers, we're now constantly, um, you know, generating information about ourselves, mm. uh, not to mention systems, not to mention uh, machines, not to mention autonomous machines, and so on and so forth. And now as we transition our sort of, sort of global IT uh, or technology ecosystem into sensors, uh, imagine the explosion of data that's going to come out of those sensors. I mean, you, you're theoretically going to have, not theoretically, literally going to have trillions of small sensors all over the place generating information. So there's clearly going to be a need of managing and processing that information in some meaningful way. And as machines become smarter at the edge, the requirement is going to be how do you process information, large copious amounts of data at the edge. Mm -hmm. And that's where machine learning comes in. Um, the second sort of shift or of late that's happened or change is is the way, you know, one, clearly the, the Moore's Law classic, you know, processing capability. We've got more powerful processors that are able to process information in uh, faster. I remember in 2003, 4, 5, when we were doing some rudimentary sort of AI projects, it would take us literally a day to come back to, to run our models. I mean, even though some wow. models today do take a, a long amount of time, uh, but these are really simple models. And it took us almost a day to come back to find that our models had failed. So we had to retweak our models and then run them again for a day, uh -huh. day and a half. So that is a very laborious process. Uh, but with processors getting far more powerful today, um, it's made a big difference in terms of our speed of sort of uh, processing data. Uh, and then sort of within the processor world, the application of GPU uh, type of uh, uh, processors to the, uh, the, uh, the challenge of uh, processing large amounts of data has also helped us quite a bit. Right. And that's sort of the transition from, um, you know, as, as GPUs were historically used for gaming systems, you know, somewhere along the line, someone decided to use them for large data constructs. And that had, again, I think that was one of the seminal moments where right. we have now have the ability to sort of process information much quicker and faster. Um, and um, so you, you have that. And then I think one thing that excites me immensely is the democratization of tool sets and toolkits. I mean, for example, um, and, you know, you know, Microsoft Azure ML um, Studio. I mean, just a very simple democratization on how developers can come in, look at that environment, work with what would historically have been very complex undertakings. Because when we were working early on in 2001, 2002, 2003, we didn't have sophisticated tool sets and toolkits that made all of the the, um, the underlying handling of data, orchestration of data, uh, running analytics on data, it, it was something we had to sort of write up from scratch, um, right. you know, in some language. Um, and now you've got these amazing studios, um, and, you know, I've leveraged a whole bunch of them, these env environments, or what we call sandbox environments, that lets us as developers really play with this technology. And Microsoft Azure ML's Studio is one of those really amazing uh, systems that really simplifies that. So the democratization of those tool sets and toolkits, again, is something that's driving um, the, um, the adoption or this, this convergence. And then yeah. last but not least, sort of... Uh, the, the need to process, I mentioned this, the, as machines get smarter, the need to process information at the edge is is really important. And so that also, um, so you've got these four or five sort of underpinnings or sort of these underlying sort of um, um, 
sort of new changes, they're all coming together at the same time. And that's why adoption, utilization, consumption of this broad field called AI has become simpler. And that's why it's uh, it's becoming more prevalent. Right. And with it become becoming simpler and having those those tools at, at your disposal to now start you know, doing things quicker than in a day, you can actually run tests, I'm sure in minutes or hours um, for big data sets. What is the, I know there's a lot of back and forth on the concern over the pace uh-huh. of um, AI moving forward. There's a school of thought that AI could be very dangerous. There needs to be regulation. There needs to be rules around you know, privacy, how we use it, how we use data, how we use AI. Um, and then more of that scientific, like, we're just moving faster because we're getting those tools. And the right. the more the further along we get with it, the better it's going to get and it's going to improve society. Where do you kind of sit on between those sides of, you know, this could be really dangerous and detrimental to our society to this could really bolster yes. our society? So, so, Penny, this is one of the probably the most difficult questions you've asked <laughs> me. And the reason for that is that if I answer this, I've enshrined my thinking and you know how these things change and shift. Right. Um, but I, what you're sort of describing is the classic sort of Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg sort of head to head on mm-hmm. this particular issue. Um, you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily and this is not a cop out. So I'm not necessarily uh, in one way or the other sit in either of those camps. But if you were to ask me which side I'd lean more towards, it would probably be on the Elon Musk side. Um, And that's less so driven by the technology, but sort of more so driven by human psychology. (laughs) That, you know, we often take really powerful technologies and apply them for sometimes insidious purposes. And we've done that across our history, right? So... So I think AI will be applied for insidious things, and we're seeing that today in terms of how AI is being leveraged to establish, you know, surveillance-based societies, and and what that means to privacy, and 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 I think we we've got to take those things very very seriously because those will deconstruct the way we uh, we think our societies ought to operate, and and they'll happen very subtly. It's almost sort of the the frog in boiling water kind of thing, right? right? So. The, the that sort of freedom uh, that we sort of take for granted can really erode very slowly and quickly and out of sight and out of mind again. So there, there will be no discussion. There will be no debating. Uh, it will happen very quietly and, and often behind the scenes. And right. before you know it, what we take take for granted is something that we don't have. And we won't even realize when that happens. So I'm, so I'm a little bit of a pessimist in terms of how we will eventually. There's, there's a huge amount of optimism that goes with what AI can bring in terms of um, societal improvement and um, and sort of helping humanity on a whole bunch of different areas, especially healthcare, for example. Um, but it, its application for certain uh, other purposes um, are, are a little disappointing and a little, uh, um, you know, uh, scary yeah, at times. So I would sort of fall on, uh, err more on the side of Elon Musk uh, than Mark Zuckerberg, um, but we'll, we'll let time sort of flesh that out. Right. I I was listening to a couple of Elon Musk interviews in prep for this interview. And I, I have to say, like, he would get to a point in an interview where I was like, <laughs> I got to turn everything off. Like <laughs> at one point he was saying that eventually we'll be able to take all of the data that w- that I've created about myself and transfer it to another being or body should this one go away and i was like right. i i gotta i actually think that's when i started to hear the clinking of yeah. the, the whiskey so so <laughs> that's yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so that's the neuromorphic computing and and um yeah so that's that's quite interesting and again in terms of the arc of um 
AI as a study or as a field, uh, its evolution, what has really surprised me is, is when, whenever we sort of thought about AI and its evolution, neuromorphic computing was something that was sort of the, you know, the, the end, one of these sort of the, the far reaches or the far rungs of uh, where this field's going to go in. And, um, and we had sort of you know, adv advanced language translations or two-way translators and, and sort of more advanced um, chatbots or surgical robots were sort of, again, further downstream, but more within hand. And then, you know, uh, the folks uh, at um, uh, with you know, Elon's company came out with a neuromorphic uh, um, computing where they built a robot that enables them to sort of uh, establish um, uh, synaptic access to, um, um, you know, or sort of access to synaps uh, synapses within within the brain uh, where they can, you know, sort of, um, um, and have sort of provided some level of um, information to us in terms of what those can mean in terms of controlling computers right. and things of that sort. So neuromorphic computing was something at the far rungs or the far edges of the evolution of this field, but it's it's there. And and you know and so the, what I'm often sort of ex interested about is what is the R and D that's going on right now somewhere that we don't even know of. Right, that's what and, I always and, think of. And and what is going to come out of uh, out of out of those efforts and something we're just not even aware of. Um, that's kind of exciting, but kind of scary as well. Um, and so um, yeah. So again, ba back to the question lean more towards the Elon Musk side. Um, I think uh, they, there's a lot of positive that can come out of this, but I'm sure we'll apply this, as humans always do, to certain uh, insidious uh, purposes, right. and, and that's not going to be good for us. Yeah, we just can't help ourselves we sometimes. Help ourselves, yeah. <laughs> it's human psychology piece. Right. Um, you had mentioned, uh, you know, Microsoft and their their Azure um, product that's really helping, you know, in the field and those um, those toolkits and tool sets. What are um, what's the outlook? What's going on? Um, who are the major players in AI today? We you said you know there's R and D probably going on behind the scenes with I'm right. sure many of the players out there. Yep. Um, but what are you sort of seeing stand out amongst um, the big guys? Um, so you know when I look at sort of from an AI sort of vendor partner landscape. You know, I try and break that down into sort of multiple layers. Then, who are the guys who are or gals who are strong in sort of um, uh, the the hardware layer? Um, you know, they're building really great uh, um, you know, silicon infrastructure for us to sort of be able to process. And I think that's where. And, and you know, I usually give a talk. I always say, you know, I wish I could come up with a different cast of characters. So it seems seems to always be the same cast of characters. <laughs> so whether it's is Intel or Nvidia or or uh, Micron. You know, they're, they're sort of helping build out sort of that core infrastructure uh, upon which um, everything rides. And so those um, are still sort of the primary players yep. within this space. Um, and then you have um, from a um, sort of from an, a software infrastructure perspective, you know, you've got, again, those, like I mentioned, like you've got the uh, Azure ML folks at Microsoft, uh, you've got Google with their TensorFlow uh, sandbox environments. Um, so you've got, you know, those companies again, um, and IBM and others that, that are sort of your classic uh, companies that give us the ability to, um, um, you know, deliver around the software layer. And then you've got a whole broad set of ecosystems that's somewhat diverse uh, with respect to the tool sets and toolkits. Um, and, and so that also sort of helps within, uh, within this process. And then you've got the large data companies. And then the question is, where will AI innovation come from? Um, and that's where companies like Google again and Facebook and Apple and others that have access to large data sets. So, you know, whether it's Apple through its iPhones and other sort of systems, and whether it's Netflix in terms of behavioral metrics around mm 
um, entertainment consumption, whether it's Facebook with all of that data set that it has through its applications uh, or any other company that has access to these large data sets, they generally have that opportunity to build really sophisticated uh, underpinnings uh, around machine learning and around AI. So it's it's having that opportunity, it's having the software tool sets and tool sets uh, and toolkits, and it's the infrastructure that helps ride all of this stuff. So you've got you know different sort of leading players in these different sort of rungs uh, within the overall ecosystem. Mm. So that that kind of talks about the the big the big picture mm-hmm. of AI, the the Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musks. But what about you know if we were to bring take it down just a step and what. Um, AI and those applications, um, how can, how are businesses starting to kind of apply that for, you know, ROI as part of how they do business? Um, Because I think that's probably more of the relatable thing. We talk about machines and, you know, robots building. I think there's a YouTube video out there of a robot like that can do drywall and everyone's <laughs> like, Oh my God, the construction industry is going to fall. You know, that's all of that sky is right, falling sort right. of things, but it there, there's true application for it in everyday business. So I, I think, um, so that example that you gave with the drywall, um, I wouldn't be quick to sort of dismiss the potential disruption that is right around the corner with respect to the workforce. Okay. And, and I think there are lots of interesting studies, whether it's from Brookings Institution or from uh, uh, McKinsey and Co., um, that speak to how AI-specific automation is going to be super disruptive to our societies in the next 15 to 20 years. And there, there's a broad spectrum of numbers that they give. Uh, I, th- I think at, at a basic level, I may be wrong on these numbers, but I think the global workforce is around um, 2.1, 2.2 billion folks that are generally employed globally. Um, you know, at the conservative level, we're looking at a 300 million job disruption in the next 15 to 20 years. Yeah. Wow. And it can be as high as 800 million. Uh, and, and so there's social scientists and, and AI practitioners in general have a view that we're looking at disruptions at the level that we had in the industrial revolution period uh, with the Luddites. And, and if you can imagine sort of the textile industry being yeah. automated and, yeah. and what that um, uh, you know, that had a significant impact Well, the farming industry being automated. And at one point, I think within the U.S., almost 90% of our population was in some way, shape, or form um, associated with the agricultural industry. Uh, well, today it's about 2% or less right. than 2%. And, and so, yes, we've, we've sort of transitioned over a period of time, and we, ha- we put in certain mass programs like primary education was not something that we had. Um, prior to the agricultural shift. And we had to bring in primary education to give our workforce the skill sets to be able to transition. And that period of transition was much longer. And so the societal impact, though significant, we we had significant challenges um, in sort of the farming uh, automation and then the industrial revolution period. Um, But we had a long period of time to sort of adjust ourselves and our society and how we trained our workforce to make them capable of uh, uh, of delivering around new new sort of types of services, that might be different this time around because it's moving way faster. The, the pace of change yeah. is much faster. Yeah. Uh, the need to transition the workforce. So, so, and I'm, I'm I know I'm going into the weeds on this, but mm-hmm. I think it's a really important topic, uh, which is you know, you've got low skill jobs. You've got what we call mid-skilled jobs, and you've got highly skilled jobs. Let's say if we look at the workforce and we divide those into those three categories. So the low-skilled jobs 
though easy to automate, don't necessarily have a financial upside for businesses to automate. So you can always find low-cost workforce and just use them and leverage them for that. And they usually provide services uh, that the mid-skilled folks are leveraging or utilizing, whether it's food services or other areas. It's the mid-skilled folks who are sort of consuming those low-skilled services. The the mid-skilled jobs are what require some basic level of training, uh, and are repeatable in some cases, those are the jobs that are most likely to be automated out. So whether it's um, you know a lot of information processing, so whether it's paralegal work, whether it's uh, customer service, uh, whether in transportation, it's actually even transportation, driving, um, right. those are the ones that are likely to be um, disrupted. Now, the challenge for us as, as uh, uh, social scientists would be how do we get our society to be prepared for those changes? And by the way, the, the, the period of change will be compressed. It's not going to be over 100 years. It's going to be within 15, 20 years. And so usually you either move that workforce to a low-skill job or you move that workforce to a high-skill job. High skills in this case are going to be very difficult to sort of train someone who's in a mid-skill. These skills are very sophisticated and very difficult to sort of get folks um, to make that transition. And then the other challenge is because the, as you're sort of attenuating the mid-skill jobs and they are sort of the, uh, the consumers or lower-skill services, the likelihood is your low-skill jobs are not going to grow either. So you're going to have essentially a workforce for good, you know, and that's maybe one or two generations of folks who are going to have a very hard time transitioning into one bucket or the other. So that disruption is what I think a lot of social scientists talk about is going to be something that a lot of Western uh, democracies are going to have to contend with. And now Brookings has come with uh, a proposition that that's going to impact how we govern. So we, we take for granted that we've got these, um, you know, democratized societies with civil liberties, and we take it for granted. But there's no guarantee that that's, that's going to continue or be around as these societies go through these convulsions. And so that's something that really concerns me in terms of AI and its impact on society. But that's a completely different topic. No, it's super interesting because I, I, as the everyday person that's out there that I think the perception is, and that just mine, that's the beauty of a podcast. It can be completely our opinion, our perception um, is that it's the low skill being replaced. It's the, you know, the cashier with the self checkouts. It's, you know, the, the brick and mortar stores because I now use Amazon to do everything. And so I, I think we as a, as a body of people think, oh, we don't need any more cashiers. We don't right. need any more restaurant workers. You know, that I'm fine ordering at Chili's at my table and paying for it and not dealing with a human. Um, but we don't think about that, that mid-level, which is where the majority of us actually sit Absolutely. every single day. Absolutely. So what's your, you know hypothesis of how we are going to tackle that as a society with that large group of people now that have to go one way or the other. Now, the optimistic view is that that AI or sort of this transition in general will create a whole bunch of new jobs. And that's where a lot of that workforce will sit. But there's some early indication that and data is showing this, that there is a, a decoupling of job creation and automation that has begun to happen. And it sort of started happening in the 2000s. So if you go back all the way to the 1940s, you, you'll often see sort of a parallel sort of growth of uh, productivity enhancement with employment enhancement. Mm-hmm. And that productivity enhancement usually came from automation. So there was, there was a corollary, or you can make a correlation that 
as you were automating and improving your productivity, um, you were essentially creating other jobs. And you basically had the ability to sort of uh, enable folks to transition into those jobs. Somewhere around 2000, that decoupling happened, where those two lines of growth stopped happening, where productivity enhancement continued to happen through automation, um, but jobs weren't being created. And again, so that's another thing that is different than what was in the past. So I I don't have an answer for this. I mean, I know it's a question. I I wish I could tell you there's going to be a whole bunch of new jobs that will get created. I don't have an answer. And and I think the reality is my gut sense is telling me and my sense is telling me that there's going to be a, a significant amount of of disruption. Um, and and how we contend with it, what we do, um, you know, whether we've got to sort of come up with, again, a, a mass project like the primary education project, right? So how we educated ourselves. But that primary education construct that we're still consuming or our kids are consuming today, which are the three R's, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic. Mm-hmm. Those are the three sort of fundamental underpinnings of primary education. Uh, that needs to be changed. Right. And and what would that program be? So someone with far greater imagination than myself within these <laughs> fields as social scientists have to think about these problems or challenges and, and figure out what would that, that process be that enables our, our populations and our workforce to make a smoother transition. But there should be no illusion that this is going to be significantly disruptive. Right. And I, I think, I mean, we've seen in, in education, and I um, have a little bit of a background um, in K-12 through education, and we saw the rise up of the STEM science, um, technology, engineering, right. and math, and now it's arts and, you know, add, it, add another it's, it's add another level, <laughs> stream, STEAM, STEM. Um, but I think that that was kind of the, maybe the introduction Perhaps, of trying right. to prepare right. um, and get, you know, kids thinking less about, you know, going for maybe a general studies or, you know, some sort of degree that doesn't have a high level of, of technical skill to it um, and trying to get kids to go that direction in preparation for what might be coming down the line in 15 or, or 20 years. But agree, people much um, more imaginative yes, than right. us working um, with uh, that education system uh, to try to you right. know, stave off some of uh, yep. the damaging effects of what might come to the workforce yeah. in the next couple of decades. Uh, absolutely, and and I think um, you know for you know for some of us who are thinking in terms of how to make our societies more competitive, I, I think there is a legitimate case to be made that we're going to be in a state or stage, and perhaps we already are, where your national power is directly related to your ability to build these systems. And and I think a lot of folks sometimes even sort of talk to these as sort of the, the war of the algorithms, right? So how nation states are building more sophisticated algorithms that, that bring in productivity into their, organi- into their sort of uh, um, economies. And so it's almost like whether it's China or Japan or, or, or India or other sort of large or Germany or other large sort of countries that have sophisticated sort of tech base, uh, they're all striving to build more sophisticated AI engines to sort of help them solve and optimize how they operate. And so it's almost like this is a war of, um, um, you know, war of the algorithms and and where the U.S. sort of eventually falls on this. I mean, I think we're in a good position to start off with, but we shouldn't, again, take that for granted. There's a lot of interesting work that's coming out of other geographies 
And, and sometimes we're so geographically isolated that we, we sort of think that the world begins and ends here. Right. It does not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've traveled the world. I, I've seen places. And, and I think in some ways that may be part of our curriculum, that, that STEM curriculum downstream is like people need to travel to know, and, and see know what's going on, what's going on <laughs> around the world. So that does not make us complacent. Right. Uh, and I think that's one thing that's a challenge and, and people need to sort of really think that through. Yeah, yeah it, it definitely, I think that sort of belief that it starts and ends here can sometimes be what blindsides right, us right. when things come out of nowhere. Um, so I, I, like we've said, this is a hugely or a huge and broad topic. Um, what I would love to do is have you back um, to kind of expand on more topics around artificial intelligence, specifically how um, how businesses are using it. Because I think that that is really um, interesting when we go back to sort of that uh, introduction of the web and those banner ads and now the data that's being collected to um, kind of hit consumers and market brands and have companies use data that they're collecting on a daily basis to actually increase their ROI um, uh -huh. across the board. Give us a little bit of a preview of sort of that topic and how um, companies are starting to use AI to produce some ROI. Sure, absolutely. And um, so, you know, whether it's telco leveraging um AI in, in their service operations, whether it is, um, you know, automotive sort of uh, leveraging um, sort of AI or robotics or automation in manufacturing, whether it's financial industry looking at AI for risk modeling and or retail for behavioral um, metrics or analytics or predictive or prescriptive analytics. So there's the application is really broad. And, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I, I cannot remember the number of times I would speak to Tim, my boss, and and he would always say like, Jamal, what are we doing on, on, on AI? And so <laughs> I can almost imagine there are a whole bunch of CEOs out there who are sort of going after their sort of, whether it's their CIOs or their key sort of innovation officers within their companies and saying, what are you doing around AI? Because there is that hype. Right. And it's, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, everyone's trying to figure out. And, and yes, from an enterprise perspective, what they have is their data. And, and I think uh, there, there is sort of a cliche um, that, um, or sort of, uh, you know, proverbial sense or, or expression, which is, you know, data is, is the new currency. And I, I, we really believe that. I, I think we also believe that here at Connection, that data is our currency. Um, so how you can get your hands around that data and use that to uh, inform you, to use that to provide you insights, to improve your productivity, um, and perhaps look at opportunities you haven't even considered. So I would love to come back, talk to you in terms of uh, that particular space. Um, and then there are areas that we haven't touched, which are sort of the core underpinnings of AI technology. And what is it? You know, what is machine learning? And how, what's the evolution within machine learning? What are the different neural networks? What, how do particular neural networks work for particular tasks? Uh, and then just one area that I find incredibly compelling and it's sort of it's the surreal stuff in ai which is you know generative adversarial networks how you can build two networks that go against each other and sort of build images and things of that sort and and what's coming out of those systems is just mind-boggling again connections jamal khan with his first of what we expect to be many conversations about advancements in artificial intelligence until next time thanks for tuning in to the tech experience podcast from connection 